this is a new vantage point. Ah, obviously, I'm a little nervous. I'm going to start by saying when Christy emails you and says, oh, would you like to do your testimony? Um, it's a lot easier to say, no, no, that's all right. But you know what? Do it. Because it has done so much for me to think back on what the Lord's done. I just highly encourage you to do that because it's been awesome. So here we go. My spiritual journey began when I was 10 years old. A little girl across the street, Phyllis Dot, invited my sister and I to go to church with her. Church. I didn't know what that was. Church. Okay. Sounds fun to me. So I asked my parents and they said, sure. So I started going to church. What is not to like about church? You know, I'd go to Sunday school and I'd play, um, learn Bible verses and sing songs and make crafts and um, hear Bible stories. I mean, it was great. So then she started taking me to GMG girls meeting God every Wednesday night and we got these sashes and earned patches and I mean it was fabulous this is right up my alley I loved church so I went to church from age 10 to 13 with Phyllis as my sister and at age 13 I finally realized that there was something I needed to participate in this I wanted Jesus to be my savior I wanted to know I was forgiven I wanted to know I was going to heaven and so one day in Sunday school class, I accepted Jesus. And that was awesome. Shortly after, Phyllis moved. And fortunately, my mom um, knew that my sister and I loved church. So she continued to take us. And um, hopefully she'll watch this. And it's a thank you to her, because she did that. Um, and then within that year, the three of us, my sister, my mom, and I all got baptized together. So that was step one of my spiritual journey. Uh, I got into high school, I was a gymnast, I coached gymnastics, I started being just pulled in other directions. And most of high school, I did not attend church. Um, and then I went to college, and all of college, I did not attend church. So my childlike faith that I had when I was 13 was still about the same. Um, I knew it was there, and I had one incident in college that um, I can look back now and go, oh. I was the captain of my diving team, and my co-captain, a male, John Blake, was a Christian, and he and his girlfriend attended church every week. Now, they never invited me to church, and I didn't really look to do that, but I was so attracted to his lifestyle. And so I realized now that was God telling me I knew that's what I wanted. But again, I wasn't attending church and didn't really do much about that. Then I leave college and I uh, move to Sacramento here to get my first job and I decided it was time to buy a house. And so I start looking and I, I find this house and um, the first day I looked at the house, this little tiny lady comes running across from the next door and meets me and greets me and um, she was very friendly and that ends up to be Jeff's mom. So Jeff lived next door with his parents and I bought the house next door and they were a Christian family. So um, immediately, I was attracted to that, to that lifestyle. And um, she invited me to her granddaughter's first birthday. I'm not even living at the house yet. <laughs> Don't know her or her granddaughter. But to be a nice neighbor, I go to her granddaughter's first birthday. And that's the day I met Jeff. So step two in my spiritual journey, I now start going to church with him and his family. And I've never stopped going to church since. So that was 
what I call step two. I started to grow again, and that was great. However, I think that, I don't know if it's just me, but for most people probably, it's not until a trial hits you that your, your faith really gets tested. So I'd say my faith was just, it was good, it was going along, doing fine. But um, when I was four, in my mid-40s, my youngest child, daughter, developed an eating disorder. This is how I go about that. Oh, great. I got this. Let's fix this. Okay, we're going to go see this specialist, and we're going to go to that doctor, and we're going to control what you eat, and we're going to chart everything. I've got this, you know? And that's really how I did my life until this point. I felt I was very in control, and most things that came my way, I fixed somehow. And that ended up to be a five-year battle that I could not fix. I mean... (laughs) The, the um, strain on my marriage, the strain on my family, it was so difficult during that time. It sounds like nothing, but it was terrible. So for five years, we battled that, but um, the Lord spoke to me audibly three times during that journey, and he just taught me, right, during that five-year period that, Didi, you're not in control, but I am, and I've got this, and of course, sure enough, my daughter's doing great. Um, my faith was completely transformed during that trial and now I can walk uh, it was very it was very freeing it was humbling but it was so freeing to know that nope <laughs> it's not up to me thank goodness it's not up to me because I I can't I can't do anything on my own only through him so I just end to say that thank you Lord for being with me through all those steps little did I know he was still working when I wasn't working but he was so it's cool to see that That's my testimony, and yours is so different. They're all so different. And so I just encourage you to look at yours and go, wow, thank you, Lord. Awesome. Praise God. Thank you, Dee Dee, for sharing that. Um, I want to uh, invite you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 will be our text tonight, and I will turn there with a little bit of fear and trembling because this is an incredible passage that we're going to look at tonight, and I will not do it justice, but I pray that it is encouraging. So before we, we get into it, let me, let me pray, ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll get into what we have. Lord, thank you for this opportunity once again to gather together around your word and and imperfectly um, yet hopefully faithfully hear what you have to say to us tonight and I pray that you would use your word among us you'd give me accuracy and strength and clarity as I proclaim Acts 2 here and Lord I pray that you would use it among your people to encourage us and to build us up and to stir us up to worship you and to love you and to, that would spill out into love of, of everyone, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. So before I get into Acts 2, uh, a couple weeks ago, Tuesday, January 9th, it was a little bit before 10 p.m., I was driving eastbound down Highway 50 just after the, I, or the uh, I-80 Highway 50 interchange. And as I rounded the bend, it's about 10 o'clock at night, I could see the beautiful Sacramento City skyline. 
and piercing the night sky, right in the middle of this skyline, I saw the beautiful, breathtaking beam. Has anyone else seen the beam? In the, you guys know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, the beam is a series of lasers that sit atop the Sacramento Kings Stadium downtown. And uh, they sit on the arena there, and they shine a massive purple beam into the sky whenever the Kings win a basketball game. And if you, if you haven't seen it, it's impossible for me to do justice. You just need to find a night where the Kings win. I think they play this Thursday. Uh, and then go outside and look for it. I think you could see it from here, actually. It, it's, um, it's that bright. The beam stretches into the sky, announcing to all of Sacramento that something dramatic has happened, something great has happened. The Kings won. And I, I bring up the beam here, uh, not just because it gripped me when I saw it, and I, I don't think I'll ever be the same, but also because this passage stands before us today in Acts 2 as a kind of a beam. It's announcing something dramatic that's happened right here at the beginning of the book of Acts, right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. We have here at the very beginning the first apostolic sermon preached about the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And in this sermon, Peter proclaims the beautiful, breathtaking, glorious reality of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And this ought to stir us up to worship. And so as we look at this tonight, as we, as we study it and we see what Peter has for us and ultimately God has for us, the, the big idea, the big goal is that we would worship the exalted Jesus if you, if you take notes, that's kind of our big focus tonight, is just that we would see what Christ has done through Peter's sermon, and that we would worship Jesus for it. In this passage, uh, Peter's preaching a sermon in response to questions about, he, how, about how he and the other disciples are able to miraculously speak in other languages, speak in tongues. And one way you could summarize Peter's sermon is just kind of, he's, he's explaining what happened with the Spirit and how you can be a part of it. That's what he's proclaiming to his audience. And our text tonight, it's a bit of a longer passage you can see in your notes or in your bulletin. So instead of reading it all right now, I want to just focus in on one verse and then we'll read the rest kind of as we go through each point. So verse 36 really summarizes what Peter is doing here, and it's kind of the climax of his sermon. So verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter's answer to questions is that the the miracles that everyone has been witnessing are explained by the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and Christ. So here's kind of our roadmap for tonight. We're going to walk through this. Uh, we're going to start with the first uh, few verses here, ch- chapter 2, 14 through ver- chapter 2, verse 14 through 21, where Peter kind of frames this whole thing with an Old Testament quote. And we could summarize Peter's point there just simply as something dramatic has happened. Peter's bringing this Old Testament text out to highlight something dramatic has happened. 
And then we'll walk through Peter's explanation of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally, we'll conclude the sermon just looking at the remaining verses and seeing the outcome of Peter's sermon. Before we get into Peter's sermon proper, though, I just want to set the stage a little bit with a little bit of context from the verses leading up to our text. So prior to verse 14, the beginning of chapter 2, records the events that unfolded on the day of Pentecost. This was one of the Jewish holidays. It was around, well, I think it was exactly 50 days after the Passover, which would have put it 50 days after the death of Christ, which uh, doing the math from the 40 days that Jesus was on earth before he ascended into heaven, this was about 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he had left his disciples to wait for him sending his spirit. And the first part of this chapter recounts the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The disciples receive the Holy Spirit, and incredibly, they start speaking in tongues, which uh, has lots of connotations for us today, but, but really, all it means here, very simply, is just they're speaking in other languages. The text is very clear here in Acts. They spoke in languages they had never learned. Acts 2.6 says, the people were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the apostles are given this gift to speak in tongues, to speak in languages that they hadn't learned. And what they were saying was comprehensible to the people around them. They they could understand it. They, They spoke, verse 11 tells us, they were telling the mighty works of God. They were declaring what God had done. And as you can imagine, a large group of people start sporadically speaking in another language they haven't learned. This commotion drew a a crowd. Uh, Jews, some of which had traveled to the area for Pentecost, some of which were already there and lived there, uh, they they start gathering around quickly to see what's going on. Uh, They would have spoken different languages. So when Peter Peter and the other apostles start speaking different languages, Uh, These are the languages that they're speaking. It's the languages of all these people who've come for the Feast of Pentecost, and they want to, uh, they're able to hear Peter and the other apostles in their own language. And so they're amazed. The text says they're bewildered, they're amazed, they're astonished. And some responded with innocent curiosity, it seems, just asking, what does this mean, verse 12 says. And others mocked. Verse 13 says, and they said the disciples were filled with wine. They were drunk. That's why they're talking in strange languages. And so it's in this context, in response to all of this confusion and chaos, that Peter then steps up and addresses the crowd as kind of a representative of the disciples. And he quickly dismisses the idea that any of them were drunk because, he says, it's still early in the day. It's probably like 9 a.m. is what that third hour means. And then he launches into what we have recorded as the first apostolic sermon ever preached on Jesus Christ. And in this sermon, Peter announces the reason the miracles the crowd witnessed have happened is because something dramatic has happened. These miracles are happening because they're happening as a result of 
the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's how Peter's going to proceed now, is showing us these things. So, so first, uh, we're going to zoom in on the first part here of Joel 2. So something dramatic has happened, point one. To explain the events that have unfolded, Peter quotes Joel 2. Peter indicates that in the fulfillment of Joel 2, God has poured out his spirit. This explains the miracles the disciples are doing. This is why the disciples are able to speak in tongues. He's saying what's happening now is what Joel talked about in Joel chapter 2. So let me read these verses and then we'll unpack them a little bit. So verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter quotes a lengthy section here, and there's more to get, there's more that we could get to than we would ever be able to get to. But for our purposes, focus in on what he says in verses 17 and 18. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh in verse 17. And then verse 18, he says again, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Peter's connecting this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the effects of which his audience has just witnessed. These people have seen the effects of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's connecting that to what's talked about here in Joel. And what he's saying specifically Joel prophesied that one day God would pour out his spirit. And Peter's saying that's exactly what has taken place. The fulfillment of this prophecy has begun. He says in verse 4, uh, in, in verse four of chapter 2, we hear, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what's happened. The disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So they're speaking in other languages that they did not learn because they have the Spirit poured out on them. The fulfillment of this prophecy has begun. So this is the beginning of Peter's explanation of the miracles which the crowd saw. What can account for this arrival of the last days, though, and the outpouring of the Spirit? So Peter says here, clearly, this has started. In some sense, this is here. What Joel talked about is here. And so now he kind of turns his attention to explain how can he say that? How can he say that what Joel prophesied about has finally come? What can account for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How did this actually come about? 
And that's where he turns next. And his answer is simply, like we've been tracing, is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. What he's arguing is that the fulfillment of God's promises, specifically this Joel promise, has now come through Jesus. This prophecy is being fulfilled through Jesus. And we'll see that as we walk through the rest of Peter's sermon. So he moves on to the death of Jesus in verses 22 and 23. So having quoted Joel, he proceeds then to proclaim the death of Jesus. He says in 22 and 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter packs a lot into these two verses, but notice first that he affirms that Jesus' death is 100% part of God's plan. God was not just making the best out of a bad situation. Jesus' death is not finally or ultimately merely a human tragedy. Jesus died, Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything has gone to plan. And this reminds us first just of God's complete sovereignty over everything, Absolutely nothing happens outside of God's control. Even this most wicked and heinous event to ever happen, absolutely according to plan. God is completely sovereign. But his statement here is more than just a cold affirmation that God is in control in some ultimate sense. Peter's actually, it's even more encouraging than that. He says that this was God's plan, his definite plan. There's intentionality. God has a plan. And in fact, Peter here, he's already quoted Joel. He's going to go on to quote explicitly two more Old Testament passages and maybe more uh, alluded to throughout. This plan that God has been working is a definite plan which has been carrying out throughout history and it's revealed throughout the Old Testament. And now it's reached its climax in the work of Christ that happened around 2,000 years ago. And we get to see this plan unfold. And we, we should. We should study scripture to see how this plan unfolds. And we should see how Joel fits with Acts and Psalms that Peter will quote in a minute. But God is working a plan. And it's reaching its climax here, as Peter's saying. He says more, too. He he focuses attention on two facts that connect the audience to Jesus. Peter's preaching to this Jewish audience, some of which traveled for the day of Pentecost. Others were already from this area, from Jerusalem. These are people who would have witnessed Jesus' ministry. That's what Peter says. He reminds them of this. He says, Jesus was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
But Peter's up preaching in front of a crowd of people who actually saw Jesus' ministry. They saw his miracles. They saw his signs, his wonders. They know that he did these things. It's worth noting that he refers to Jesus here just simply as Jesus of Nazareth. And a few times then throughout, he says, this Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus I'm talking about, Jesus of Nazareth. And you may have noticed I I called him Jesus of Nazareth a couple times earlier, too. And that's because for Peter's audience, Jesus, Jesus was just a person. There was Jesus they knew. That's all Peter's saying here. He's saying, Jesus, this was, um, he was a real life, actual person. He doesn't refer to Jesus here as the Son of God. He doesn't refer to him as the second person of the Trinity, as the Messiah. He's not, he's not getting into any of that right now. Right now, all he's saying is Jesus, that, that, that one from Nazareth. You know, the one we all know, Jesus, the Jesus from Nazareth. And I, I bring up that point just to highlight and to remember that our faith is rooted in real-life historical events. And that's, that's where Peter's starting here, is just in the historical reality that this Jesus really lived, and they knew him. They knew he did these things. Jesus, the one from Nazareth. But back to Peter's audience, he, he reminds them they know more about Jesus than just where he's from. He says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter condemns them with this statement. There was ample evidence, Peter's saying. They saw the miracles. They witnessed the signs. They had all the proof they should have needed to conclude that Jesus was from God. But then Peter points the finger at them and says, this Jesus, the one who you saw do all those incredible things, you killed him. And he acknowledges that the murder occurred by the hands of lawless men, but that doesn't give him any reservation whatsoever in declaring these people guilty in killing Jesus. Now, I would imagine that to some extent we're all familiar uh, with the feeling of knowing we've done something wrong and not wanting to admit it or address it. We may minimize it. We may try to ignore it. Maybe we distract ourselves with other things. Whatever we can do to keep our attention away from that wrong thing we've done. And who knows what these people would have been thinking or how they would have been processing or how exactly they may have tried to justify their murder of Jesus following these events. We don't know. But we do know right now Peter brings it right back to the forefront of their minds. They can't deny it. They've killed Jesus, who had done no violence, who had no deceit in his mouth. They've killed him. So Peter proclaims both the death of Jesus and the guilt of his audience. And we may be quick to excuse ourselves here, but it's worth noting scripture, uh, I mean, after all, we didn't kill Jesus, but scripture unashamedly affirms that we're all sinners before God. We're all guilty of rejecting God, rebelling against him, sinning against him. 
Psalm 14 says, none is righteous. No, not one. Everyone. Everyone has sinned against God. We're all in the same boat as Peter's audience prior to Christ. We, we, we stand condemned in the same way that they did. And we sing about that, too. We sing in the song, The Father's Love. That's why we sing, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So there's a sense in which we're, we're in Peter's eyes here, too. We've sinned against God, leading to his murder, Christ's murder here. So Peter calls us to worship a crucified Savior, one who died on the behalf of murderers, even his own murderers. And Peter then declares the resurrection of Jesus in the following verses, 24 to 32. Let me read those. Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter affirms the resurrection of Christ, of which he is a witness, and he explains the resurrection by quoting the words of David in Psalm 16 that Tim read a few minutes ago. David affirms for, David says in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And we we won't dig too deep into Peter's argument, but what Peter essentially says is, listen, David died. David did see corruption. David's soul is in, he's dead. So David must not have been talking about himself David was looking forward to Christ's resurrection. David was not talking about himself. He was talking about Christ. So Jesus did not merely die on our behalf. No, he he also rose from the dead. We worship Christ as the resur- or as the crucified Jesus, but also as the risen Jesus. We worship a God who's not dead. We worship a Savior who's not dead. We worship a, re- a risen Jesus. And Peter here calls us to worship. And this brings us 
directly into the ascension of Jesus. And it seems for Peter, it seems that the resurrection doesn't just end with Jesus on earth. The resurrection continues up to heaven. It ends with Jesus in heaven. So we reach the next point, the ascension of Jesus. And here we'll look at verses 33 to 35. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 33 brings us to a crucial part of Peter's argument here. He says, Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is exalted Jesus receives the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You hear what Peter's saying? He's saying Jesus is the one who's pouring out the Spirit. And here ultimately is Peter's explanation for how these events are happening. What's what's going on? Why they're speaking in foreign languages they don't know. Yes, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy has begun, as Peter indicated earlier. But here he adds, Joel's prophecy is fulfilled through Christ. Joel said, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Peter now says, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit. It's through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that this prophecy is being fulfilled. So to come back to the initial question the crowd was asking, how are the disciples speaking in tongues? Peter answers, the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. And then he points to Psalm 110. That's what he's quoting there to argue The same thing basically said about David before. David also didn't ascend into heaven. So David was speaking once again of Christ. And then he brings his sermon to a dramatic close in verse 36. We read this earlier at the beginning. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter ties everything together. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, and he's Lord as well. He's the, the Lord who we, are call, who we are to call on in order to be saved. This is what explains the display of miracles that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Christ is here. Jesus has sat down in heaven as Lord and Christ. He has received the Holy Spirit from his Father, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. This is the dramatic thing that has happened. The crucified, risen, exalted Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit on his people. And this is the Jesus we're called to worship 
And this brings us to the response. And we'll just conclude with a few things in this, these last few verses. This statement from Peter, it hits his audience, hits these Jewish people he's been talking to like a dagger. They cry out to Peter and the disciples. They say, brothers, what shall we do? They recognize they've sinned. They recognize that they have Jesus' blood on their hands. And they recognize what Peter is saying now, that this Jesus they've killed is right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. What shall we do? Peter responds with the offer of salvation. He says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The offer of salvation is freely extended to these people. And we shouldn't rush rush past this. We should remember who these people are. Some of these people are the people who just a few weeks earlier were calling for Jesus' crucifixion. These are murderers in Peter's eyes. Yet Peter tells them even they can be forgiven if they simply repent he says, and be baptized. Let this encourage you. This should encourage all of us that if what Jesus has accomplished is sufficient to cover the sins of the people who murdered him, do we have any reason to doubt that he would forgive us? The offer of forgiveness is held out to the murderers of Jesus. Surely it's held out to us. God calls all sinners to respond in this way, repentance and baptism. And Peter's not here going into some deep theological discussion about how repentance and baptism relate to each other, and so we're not going to either. But repentance is just a rejection and turning away from sin. It's frequently throughout the New Testament, and Tim mentioned this this morning in Equipping Hour, it's combined often with the call to believe as well. Repentance and belief go hand in hand. And together they include recognizing your own sin and looking to Jesus as your only hope, calling on him as Lord. And baptism then is the outward expression of that faith. And it follows repentance and belief. Baptizing is what God commanded, what Jesus commanded the disciples to do in Matthew 28 after his ministry was completed. We're called to repent and believe, and baptism should follow. Peter tells them, too, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for those who are all, all, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So the same spirit whose power these people had witnessed, Peter's saying that the promise of that spirit is for you. And not just you, but for those who are far off as well, which includes us. It's for everyone who God calls to himself. And their response response then some of them believe verse 41 says so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls people hear the message of the gospel 
and they respond with repentance and baptism. And I just want to conclude with verse 42, because verse 42 shares the incredible fruit that this gift of the Holy Spirit yields in these people who believed. And the incredible thing, and I think the thing that's worth thinking about for a a brief minute as we close, is it's not dramatic displays of power. The, the, The transformation that happens in these people, they don't get the ability that the disciples had to speak in other languages. The outcome actually might strike us as kind of common and very earthy and ordinary, but it's incredible. And he says, verse 42, and just, I'll, I'll just close with reading this, but just as we read this, remember that some of these people were the same people who crowded around Pilate just a few weeks earlier demanding Jesus' crucifixion, right? These people are people who were dead set against Jesus. And now verse 42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, just through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the power of the Holy Spirit transforming people. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the reality of Jesus coming on our behalf and dying in our place and rising from the dead and ascending to be at your right hand and and pouring the spirit out on us so that we can be new creatures. Lord, we can be transformed by you and we, we live in that hope and I pray that you would use the reflections we've had from Acts 2 today to encourage us in worshiping you until you return. In your name, amen.